The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If we are talking about peace, and this is very explicitly indicated in peace formula proposed by President Zelensky, where justice, a restoration of justice, is one of the important elements. And my president always says that we are fighting on both front lines to restore our territorial integrity, independence, and freedom, and to ensure justice for all victims and survivors of this war. These two elements are interlinked, and they are how you can feel a peace from the point of view of person in Ukraine who suffered from this war, who suffered from war crimes. I'm Eric Charamella, contributing editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 2nd, 2023. Today's episode is a bit unusual. We're bringing you audio from an event I helped organize last week at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace with Ukraine's Prosecutor General, Andriy Kostin. Mr. Kostin had a fascinating conversation with Carnegie President Tino Cuellar about the Ukrainian government's focus on achieving justice and accountability for the many victims of Russia's war crimes and atrocities. The discussion ranged from the challenges of actually documenting and investigating tens of thousands of alleged crimes in wartime to the ongoing debates over a future tribunal, reparations, and the Ukrainian government's simultaneous effort to fight corruption. This event was co-sponsored with the American Society of International Law and the Embassy of Ukraine in Washington. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 2nd. War Crimes, Tribunals, and Reparations, a conversation with Ukraine's Prosecutor General. This event with the Prosecutor General of Ukraine comes at a critical moment for Ukraine and for the world. It's an important moment because a terrible and tragic war that began with an invasion is dragged on for a tremendous amount of time, cost huge amounts of money. The cost to reconstruct Ukraine at this point runs probably more than $400 billion. But the human toll of the war is far greater and far more important. If we think about more than 500,000 belligerents who have been in some way hurt or killed, millions of lives that have been disrupted and continue to be disrupted. For those of us who have spent time thinking about international law, we know that one of the bedrock distinctions in international law is between combatants and civilians. 
Those distinctions have been routinely disrespected by the invading power in this case, creating a situation that has harmed a great many civilians across small towns, large cities, everywhere in between. As the world copes with the situation, various different players, different countries around the world, social movements, international tribunals, the United Nations, have all acted in different ways, trying to take stock of what it means for the world to still be grappling with aggressive war well into the 21st century. While the International Criminal Court is playing a role in all this uh, and has issued, in fact, an arrest warrant, the Ukrainian government itself plays an absolutely critical role. In fact, over 80,000 cases of suspected war crimes are being investigated at this moment. Tragically, perhaps many more will be investigated. Prosecutor General Andrei Kostin is with us today to discuss all of this and the efforts that he and his colleagues are making as part of the Ukrainian government's effort to make sure that the rule of law remains meaningful, even in the midst of war. Day in, day out, as the war continues, as the fighting continues, as efforts to protect civilians continue, they gather evidence. They look around and try to document what's happening. So I think about how this event got started. We had an event right here in this room with Nobel Peace Prize laureates from Belarus, from Russia, and from Ukraine. There was much discussion then about accountability, about historical memory, about justice. This event grows out of that in an effort to understand how, in a situation as complicated and challenging as Ukraine's, those words, justice, accountability, documenting for historical memory, can be made a reality. Welcome again. It's really an honor to have you at the Carnegie Endowment. You've had an extraordinary career. You've been a private sector lawyer. You've been a board member of the International Bar Association. You've been a parliament member, head of the Justice and Safety Committee in the parliament. But this is no doubt a particularly challenging assignment. Could you share with us a bit about how these efforts to document war crimes fit into President uh, Zelensky's uh, peace strategy? First of all, um, thank you for organizing of uh, this organizing this event. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. And I really appreciate that we will not only discuss, if we will not only discuss this war of aggression and all war crimes committed in course of it, not only discuss them from legal point of view, but also discuss them from, I would say, humanitarian point of view. Because every victim and survivor has his or her name. And everything we're doing is for them, for restoring of their dignity, for restoring of their belief that justice is important, that justice exists, and that rule of law prevail over rule of force. And what we are doing, not only we in Ukraine, I say we, meaning not only us, but everyone who is helping and supporting us in all, all of our endeavors, we are doing it not only for Ukrainian victims and survivors of this war. We need to ensure 
long-lasting peace in Europe and beyond when this war will be ended. We hope by our victory. But this is also our common obligation before us, our children, grandchildren and their grandchildren. We also doing our job as a tribute to those victims and survivors of all previous wars and conflicts that has not received their matter of justice. Because of absence of international instruments or their not their inefficiency or because of many reasons and we need to remember about them and in some occasions when we fight for justice in very difficult dimensions of it we are doing it once again not only for victims and survivors in Ukraine, but also for those who still suffer from the same crimes in the other parts of the world. I've been asked sometimes very difficult question. People from the places of the world where still conflicts, wars are ongoing, asking me, I don't know why me, but they're asking me why the world is so helping Ukraine in justice and accountability efforts and didn't protect us in our situation. And it's a difficult question. Maybe it's not very fair that I need to respond to it. But what I tell them, first, we've been supported because we did and do our best to ensure justice for all victims of this war. And if you do everything on your side, then anyone who is ready to help to assist you will do it with more and more energy. And I feel it throughout these 18 months. I feel that we are supported more and more. I hope that we will have time to, to, to speak about it in details. And second, I told them that with this very wide support, if we will succeed in our situation, then you will have a chance in your countries, in your societies, because we will create this successful practice. Very few elements. We are talking about special tribunal. We will have time to talk about it in details. What is important? First time after trials in Nuremberg, trials Far East, first time we try to make aggressor accountable on international level. A lot of wars and conflicts happened in the world during these 80 years. And there was no even 
an attempt. Many tribunals, many courts, special tribunals, but they were dealing with other war crimes rather than the crime of aggression. Now we have ICC, independent judiciary institution, the strongest one to deal with war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. But we understand that international mechanism that could prosecute and punish those who are the architects and masterminds of this supreme international crime. This mechanism is not efficient. We have no hope that Security Council of United Nations will refer our case to the ICC. We know that ICC rules vis-a-vis jurisdiction on the crime of aggression are not efficient. We need to create something new based on previous experience, but to create something new and to be the first after Second World War to prosecute and to punish the aggressor. Second, we are the first who are prosecuting now environmental crimes as war crimes. Never done before, even with some piece of existing legislation. I'm not, on, I, I'm not even speaking about the crime of ecocide, just environmental crimes as war crimes. And we, for one year, we engaged huge international support. And we are moving together because we have no right to make a mistake. And even our friends and our partners, I can say this from the team of Prosecutor Han, we commend their independent work, but we are partners for them, providing them with evidences in a very speedy and efficient manner. Even they had no yet experience. And third, cyber attacks as war crimes, never done before in history. We need to be prepared because making them accountable, we can deter any future aggressor to try, even to try. Because any future aggressor will know that there is existing efficient mechanism in place to prosecute and to punish them. It's not, of course, a guarantee that there will be no wars and conflicts. We are not naive, but we need to do what we can do as lawyers, not only to prosecute and punish or to ensure fair prosecution and fair trial, but also to deter. And with this, I want to say that our discussion with humanitarian element in it, we will speak about it later, is very important because we all understand. Our predecessors did a lot in order to establish international system of law and order to prevent future wars, conflicts, to prevent commission of international crimes. But we understand that this system, unfortunately, is not fully efficient. And this is our obligation, once again, to do our best to improve, to adjust, 
in parallel with documenting, investigating, and prosecuting war crimes of this war. There are those that you have probably encountered, I have encountered them, who ask the following question. They say, it may be important to document atrocity, but isn't it more important to get to peace? And isn't a focus on documenting the atrocity something that may ultimately complicate a peace agreement? What do you say to people who would say that? First of all, we all understand there could be no just peace without justice. It's impossible. It will be not peace. It will be a ceasefire, something like this. If we are talking about peace, and this is very explicitly indicated in peace formula proposed by President Zelensky, where justice, a restoration of justice, is one of the important elements. And my president always says that we are fighting on both front lines to restore our territorial integrity, independence, and freedom, and to ensure justice for all victims and survivors of this war. These two elements are interlinked, and they are how you can feel a peace from the point of view of person in Ukraine who suffered from this war, who suffered from war crimes. Just end of the war and no justice. And looking at the, on the TV screen where perpetrators from Russia will laugh at them. I'm not speaking now about something, something strange. These are real cases of wars and conflicts on the, let's say at large, on territory of former Yugoslavia. When victims of sexual violence meet their perpetrators on the street and can do nothing. These are real stories. When someone propose us peace without justice, I will propose these people to come back to his or her city, community, country, and ask him or herself, are you ready to live in a community where people are killing, torturing, and raping others? And just leaving them do what they want without any punishment, without any order on your streets. Do you want to live in this community? And probably everyone will say, no. Everyone who committed crime should be accountable or should be isolated if, you know, these crimes are very severe and atrocious. Because... These people want to live in secure community, in secure space. Why they don't wish us, Ukrainians, to live in secure community? International crimes means that community where these crimes are committed are our planet. Are we ready to allow international criminals to live with us, to go to the same restaurant, to go to the same kindergarten? I believe no. That's why I think that those who want peace without justice just 
need to close their eyes and to imagine this picture when killers, rapers are going with them in the same streets and they just allow them to do what they want. That's a very clear answer. And that, that then brings up a practical problem, which is you are in the midst of a war. And yet at the same time, you and your colleagues are gathering information on tens of thousands of cases. We're up to about 100,000 now. Just say a little bit about how you're organizing your team mm-hmm. to do that volume of work. Yeah, this is really very important because, uh, first of all, together with uh, everyday work on uh, documenting, the, the most important is, of course, documenting. And uh, the quality of documenting is also important. What I always say to my prosecutors and to investigators, you never know this case, whether it will be prosecuted here in Ukraine or it will be lifted then to the ICC. So you need to apply high standards of the ICC, at least ICC, I would say. But I think that everyone here will say that standards of the ICC are absolutely okay, yes? So our communication and cooperation with ICC and their structures, even training courses provided by ICC to our prosecutors and investigators are very important in order to ensure that evidences are documented in proper manner. It is also very important in uh, when we document war crimes to be to be in a collaboration or cooperation with civil society organizations. This is very important because they have more sometimes they have even more resources than we. Because uh, they are not, you know, we are limited because we have time slots, we have limitations in time, we have procedural limitations. They at some occasions they can provide us with more information and they survivors trust them more than governmental authorities. So we are now changing this approach. But anyway, cooperation with civil society and organizations and NGO is very important. We have, in my office, we have a platform. It's called International Council of Experts, where we have more than 45 NGOs and civil society organizations who who have who uh, divided their uh, activity into six groups, like they, they, they chose by themselves from, um, you know, children, journalists, sexual violence, and others. We have added two more this, on the, this August, environmental crimes and civilian detainees. I hope we will talk about them a little bit later. This is very important. And uh, when we have interaction, when we ch- exchange uh, information, this is very important because people who approach NGOs and civil society organizations, they also want some result. And not always they are ready to, to provide this result because they can't, they can't uh, apply procedural, uh, they can't apply the law uh, in, 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 in procedural, how to say, dimension. So documenting. Second, of course, when you prioritize investigation. Of course, for us, the priority are cases where civilians are killed, where civilians are wounded, when uh, civilians are raped, humiliated, illegally detained. And uh, so all types of war crimes where civilians really um, were physically damaged or physically harmed. These are our priorities. And of course, we prioritize these efforts. Actually, in my war crimes department, we have three main groups. 
First group of prosecutors for the crime of aggression, second for the crime of genocide, and all others are working with war crimes. So this is to, to understand how, how we distribute. We also have we also established nine units in the regions close to the war um, uh, where uh, we specialize, uh, we provide a specialization in war, war crimes uh, investigation and prosecution within regional units in order to ensure the unified practice because practice is formed in central office and then we ensure that uh, these people are also properly trained on, on regional level and we are uh, we're using the unified practice because some of the cases were very new for us. Yes, they are in our criminal code, but they are new because there was no practice. Therefore, uh, this, um, uh, this uh, vertical uh, and horizontal um, links are also very uh, important. And in order to prioritize it, not on case-by-case case method, we also preparing strategic documents. Mm. We have strategies of investigation of international crimes. I just approved it uh, several days ago, just a week ago uh, before my visit. This was created by our prosecutors, by our partners from uh, uh, our international expert community, and also discussed with civil society organizations and NGOs in order to, to be a, 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 how to say, a systemic document. We also prepare strategic documents for specific types of crimes. We started with conflict-related sexual violence. We also prepare documents for the cases where children are affected, environmental crimes. Because, uh, once again, when we do something new, even based on, on previous uh, uh, experience, but we need to, so many incidents, we need to make this work more systemic. What we also do as an element of this strategy is uh, when we combine cases, uh, a lot of incidents, for instance, I will give you an example. The blowing up, blow up of Kachovka Dam. I created maybe the biggest in history a group of investigators and prosecutors because it's not only about the, the initial blow up, yes, initial uh, case of when, when it was you know, uh, blown up. This is the, the difficult uh, story from the point of view of uh, evidentiary base. But the consequences... The consequences for people, for environment, it required uh, the work of hundreds of investigators at, uh, simultaneously in many regions. So in order to document and to fix everything. And then uh, many of these um, of the victims, they also reported to their local police stations. And now we are collecting all of these uh, reports, all of these cases into one big case. Or when we know that, for instance, uh, missile attacks, Missile attacks were uh, committed, as we have information or we have evidence, by one specific unit of Russian army. Then we can combine these, these cases of different attacks into big one. Uh, these, of course, uh, uh, make our work more uh, efficient. So we use a lot of techniques, and when we are, we are, we are coming from investigation to prosecution... Mm. During the ongoing war, we have identified more than 400 perpetrators. We have already 58 Russian war criminals convicted in Ukrainian courts. And this is only our national part of accountability web. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web, 
Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And this brings up a subject of much debate now, which you alluded to, which is you are documenting these cases, building these cases, and there's still some uncertainty about where they're going to be heard. So one of the debates, as you know very well, is whether ultimately the international crime, particularly the aggression side of it, is best dealt with in a tribunal that is based on Ukrainian law that's internationalized, or a purely international tribunal, or maybe an international tribunal based on the law of another country. What does Ukraine most want to get out of that process? How would, it, how would Ukraine like to see that process of figuring out the right system of tribunals to deal with this? You mentioned, the, I think, one of the most important uh, elements of our accountability web, as, as we call it. It actually first was presented also in Lviv, in our United for Justice conference in March. It was a historic conference because we combined all of the elements of accountability web at one place. It, was, it lasted three days. Lviv was also chosen by us intentionally. The crime of aggression. We know the proposition of uh, G7 about uh, internationalized uh, type of tribunal based on one Ukrainian criminal law. We are in discussion, I hope even to say in dialogue, we know, okay, I'm in this process from the very first months of the war. And let's come back to September last year, when there was no country who officially supported the idea of creation of tribunal. We have some friends and allies that unofficially supported it, but first official support appeared only in October. Let's not forget about it. One year, now we are in a very precise, sophisticated, very strong, or very, uh, not strong, but very difficult discussion on the legal modality of future tribunal. One year ago, was discussion whether we need it or not. I remember 5th of October, I was in Paris for one day. It was the big event, the biggest legal event in France. It's like night of law, something like this. Uh, and it was all legal elite. And I was together with Prosecutor Han and uh, two, other, um, two other presenters at the panel. And all the time I've been asked, ICC or tribunal, whether we need tribunal if we have ICC. I said, look, ICC and tribunal, they are complementary mechanism. We will deliver everything to Karim and his team. You will never imagine what will be the result of our work. Now, everyone saw. March, last year, March this year, I'm sorry, first arrest warrants of the ICC. It took us only five months to build this case. Five months, never before in history of the ICC. Mm. This is second, actually, historical angle of this arrest warrant. And third is 
100% partnership from the state. Because let's not forget, ICC is complementary mechanism. ICC intervene when the national authorities are unwilling or unable. We are willing and we are able, unless there is a person who ensures personal immunity, like Putin. Members of Troika have personal immunity. Therefore, first arrest warrant of the team of the ICC, but prepared by team of Prosecutor Khan, is a matter also of respect to work of our prosecutors because it's first arrest warrant, it's complementary in its nature because we cannot touch Putin. We can touch people below him, but we cannot touch Putin. I intentionally come to the issue of immunity because if someone will use national criminal law, then Putin and other members of Troika will enjoy immunity. I hardly believe that Ukrainians will accept the idea of tribunal where Putin is not prosecuted. To those who propose us this, I say, okay, look, don't tell this to me. Come to Kyiv, come to Bucha, come to Kherson, come to Kharkov, gather Ukrainian people and say, look, we want to establish special tribunal for the crime of aggression, but without Putin. And then hear what Ukrainians will say. This is, when, when I'm talking about, when I'm speaking about legal and humanitarian aspect. Humanitarian, I mean, fair is combination. We think something is fair because we are lawyers, but people treat something fair because they are people. Yes. Which, something which is fair for you may be not fair for the other. That's why it's very important to be fair at large, not only legally, but when you're talking about people and they want to restore their sense of dignity. So, only two conditions are important. Putin and Troika should be prosecuted by this tribunal. And we all know ICC cannot try them in absentia while tribunal potentially can do it. And second, this tribunal should be of international, uh, of international level. Let it be called, it's, it's not about the name, but this is global war. And the response on the crime of aggression should be global because then the other potential aggressor in the other part of the world will start this. I don't want to threaten you, but we are living and we are breathing the air of war. You don't imagine what will happen if Ukraine will lose this war. You will see this war and conf- these war- wars and conflicts in the other places of the world. These potential aggressors are looking very carefully at our collective response. If response will be weak, you will see more and more. And someone will pay for this. You bring up a powerful point, which is that for us who are lawyers, we have a technical way of understanding what's legitimate. But if we don't find a way to tell a story to the larger public, it's very difficult for something we've truly seen as legitimate. I want to raise one more question for you before we go to the questions from the audience. 
which is about the special difficulty of simultaneously dealing with the war, documenting war crimes, investigating potential war crimes. And at the same time, there are people who say that Ukraine is fighting two wars. There's a war against Russia. There's a war against corruption. And say a bit about how your team is approaching the corruption challenge and promoting the rule of law generally in the midst of the war. Uh, it's because the uh, demand on justice. You know, Ukrainians' demand of justice is not only, let's say, against Russia. It's in general. Because how can you divide your demand of justice? Okay, I, I need justice for the atrocities committed by Russia, but I will just leave it unattended when it's happening something in, in Ukraine. Of course, it's challenging. But uh, how, how we deal with this? First of all, let's not limit fight against corruption only to corruption. And, and it's also about perception, actually. Because when, you, when we start some legal discussion, what is included in the word corruption, it's a set of the articles of our criminal code. Some of them are literally corruption, some of them are others. But perception of people is even wider. People think that corruption is about many, many other cases where state does not perform properly and someone earns something from this. And even if someone doesn't earn something when state is not performing properly, it's perception of people that it is corruption. And it's not, we cannot limit people saying, no, you are wrong. It's not corruption, it's the other. It's, it's wasteless discussion. If their demand for justice is to fight against this evil, this internal evil, of course, we, are, we, we try to deliver. But we cannot limit it only to fight against corruption. Actually, you mentioned these two words. I mentioned the same in my inaugural speech in the parliament when I was appointed, that we have two enemies, external Russia and its collaborators and traitors who help Russia, and second is corruption. And we need to win in both wars because we are fighting for the better country, for successful Ukraine. And how can we have a successful Ukraine after war if it is corrupted? But fight against corruption alone is not enough. We understood that there are three elements which are destroying every society. Corruption, organized crime, they are so interlinked. These organized criminal groups, they are infiltrating all the governmental authorities. They are infiltrating law enforcement authorities. And if you are just looking at specific cases of corruption, you are not breaking the system. Because organized crime is very powerful and strong, not only in Ukraine, everywhere. I'm speaking about it with colleagues here in the United States, in Europe. Believe me, I know quite a lot of what's going on in Europe and United States. And this is a big problem. And we need to fight both. And third is, I would say, a Ukrainian speciality, which... Our president started to fight even before the war, creating first anti-oligarch legislation. Fight against oligarchs. Because oligarchs are the same like 
so their structure is same like organized criminal, mm. organized criminal organization. I'm, I'm sorry, organized crime, yes. And they also, having political influence, having media influence, mm-hmm. having uh, a lot of businesses, being monopolists in many businesses, mm-hmm. infiltrating governmental authorities with people who work not on a high positions. They work on medium level, but they are experts who know where to input specific provision in governmental decree, in law, in some instruction, which will work for years. And these, these monopolists, these oligarchs will receive money, will receive super profits, and no one will understand what's going on. You can change people on the top. Politicians will be changed, but these people in the middle will stay because they are paid by these oligarchs. So what we do, we fight simultaneously on three fronts internally. Corruptioners, organized crime, and oligarchs. The biggest case of corruption in Ukrainian history, bribing of the president of the Supreme Court. Who organized this bribery? One of the oligarchs. So this is an, no, it's an explicit example how it works in Ukraine. So that's why our commitment is to clean our country as much as we can from these three elements, which could destroy any society. Thank you. I'm going to go to some questions from the audience. So the question about how Ukrainians may be unaware that they may seek justice for war crimes committed against them or disillusioned about whether that will be effective. And the questioner wants to know what Ukraine can do to raise awareness that people can make such claims and have justice done. First of all, I think that uh, in Ukraine, uh, most of the Ukrainians, uh, they definitely know where to apply. Because uh, for uh, war crimes, uh, we have uh, two investigative authorities. Uh, This is uh, State Security Service and National Police. But if they apply to any office of any state authority, any prosecutor office, they, they, their case will be registered and uh, um, uh, we will work with this case. In September, one month after I was appointed, I, I, immediately, um, I immediately organized a special unit in our war crimes department to uh, prosecute uh, conflict-related sexual violence crimes. Mm. They are most... I would say most severe, and uh, where the survivors, it, they are highly underreported. What was the reason? I saw that we have a huge support, and I understood that we need to change approach. Though it was made a lot before me, but I wanted to to do it as a sustainable, uh, sustainable element. So we. Um, we, uh, we were in contact with Pramila Patan at that moment. She is a special uh, representative of UN General Secretary for Sexual Violence. And he helped us with uh, training for our prosecutors. And we also uh, changed our strategic documents to apply principles of so-called Murad Code. I, I, I hope that you know what this, uh, this uh, document. So to ensure that uh, uh, we will use uh, survivor-centered approach with full respect, uh, I will not go into details, with full respect to, to, to the survivor. And uh, when I saw how it worked, by several months, uh, we saw 
more and more cases. We, because uh, we don't only change this approach, we change some techniques of communication. And for instance, uh, we didn't just wait for reports. When we got specific, when we got information that, that it could be the case, our prosecutors and our investigators approach, communicate, and then they saw that real, the, the cases were real. We also try to ensure the enhance or maybe comprehensive support for the survivors of these uh, crimes. I mean, medical, psychological, financial, immediate relocation from their community because of stigma and something. So this worked, and I understood that we need to ensure such approach, uh, survivor center to all victims and survivors. I created a coordination center for victims and survivors. Now it's operational. We have, we, they are going through substantial trainings. They, they are not prosecutors. They are state servants whose task is to communicate and to help victims and survivors. And this is only first stage. Thinking about peace every day, like our president, every day, I want to change this approach towards, I mean, throughout whole system of criminal, uh, of law enforcement. Because still in Ukraine, we inherited Soviet style, mm -hmm. Soviet model, where uh, your KPI is more dependent on how many criminals you captured and sent to jail. While the interests of uh, uh, victims are sometimes are somewhere aside. I want to change this approach. It's changing of philosophy that survivors and victims will understand that they are in the center of our attention. It will take time. It will take proper commun uh, communication training, but it is possible. But I think one important point to highlight to the audience is it's one thing to go out and gather information about atrocities to prepare cases. It's another thing to try to do that in a way that is profoundly respectful of the people who have been affected mm -hmm. so that they never end up feeling like objects and they're actually the ones who are partly being responded to. My staff are telling me we have time for only one more question, but I'm going to ask you two, just in a package. I will try to be short, okay. <laughs> and and they're, they're both about challenging issues, although one set of issues is more for your staff and one for you more. So, of course, war crimes is a very broad category. and There are a lot of specific judgments about how to charge particular offenses. So one question is, say a little bit about how your team thinks about mapping out fact patterns to specific mm. charges. Mm. The other question is about reparations. Mm. We're already dealing with $400 billion. We may get to a trillion dollars. These are large amounts of money. And you know, if you go back and look at World War I, World War II, these questions of reparations loom very large. So as you think about assets that are frozen, that are sovereign from the Russian Central Bank and other issues like this, how are you approaching the reparations issue and how are your discussions going on this issue? Civil liability is, uh, and um, I think it's uh, an, an important part of our uh, accountability, comprehensive accountability approach or our web of accountability, because every harm, every damage caused by uh, this uh, war of aggression should be compensated by the assets of the perpetrator. This is the principle which we want to, uh, to implement. How to ensure it? Yes, we have sovereign funds of Russian Federation who are, which are frozen. We have uh, funds of uh, private, private funds which are frozen, and we have actually 
first, uh, first successful cases of confiscation. Small case, $5.4 million. Uh, confiscation was announced on 3rd of February. I was at that time together with Mary Garland, so we, he announced it in, in my presence. This was the first case of this war internationally. Of course, this also should somehow um, um, inspire the other countries to follow this way. You know, Canada has the same legislation or likewise legislation, but they have quite long procedure in court. We have more cases in the United States. I cannot report, of course. You will, you will, you will all uh, see the, the, their results. But it's about private funds, and uh, uh, these amounts are not uh, very substantial in order to compensate. Actually, you mentioned foreign, uh, $411 billion. It's World Bank, yes, estimation. It's only about material damage of the state, of the government, of the business. But from my point of view, the most important is for people who suffered, for people to receive their compensation for their beloved uh, you know, relatives who were killed, uh, for those who were, who were wounded uh, or humiliated or you know, raped. And uh, they need to be first to receive this compensation. We know how to establish the, the channel. Already first step is done. So register of damage, which is established in The Hague, uh, under the auspices of Council of Europe on, on the basis of enlarged partial agreement. 45 countries already support this idea. But this is on the register of damage, so which will fix, once again, document, yes, fix the damage. We need uh, compensation commission on the top, which will decide transparently and independently who will receive and uh, which amount of money and compensation fund. Because if you want to compensate, you need to compensate with, uh, you need funds, you need assets. And with this, we are approaching the issue of potential compensation of sovereign assets of Russian Federation. Once again, this is an issue of immunity. So two most difficult cases from legal point of view, tribunal for the crime of aggression and confiscation of Russian assets. Both are related to the issues of immunity in Tribunal, it's personal immunity of the Troika. In um, confiscation, it's uh, immunity of sovereign funds. How to explain? It appeared that two words which we use, immunity and impunity, only one letter is different. Mm. And if there will be impunity for damage, for compensation of damage, because of respecting immunity of Russia as a sovereign state. I'm not sure this is fair. Of course, you will just return me to to legal aspect. But this is not legal. This is more political. Legally, it's easy to do. You can just, it's about parliament to, 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 to adopt the law. Of course, there will be legal consequences more even economic or financial, because Russia can use this as an, an, the same action, I mean, make or make the same action as a matter of like reciprocity action. But one and a half year of full-scale invasion already passed, and I haven't heard 
very comprehensive, still haven't heard very comprehensive arguments, counter-arguments, that it is dangerous for the countries of free world to start to touch sovereign assets of Russia. If it is an issue of mathematics, for instance, if one country can confiscate $100 of Russian sovereign funds and this, the other country can, as a matter of, matter of uh, ac- counteraction, confiscate $5 from this 100 maybe it's not bad. This 500 could be used as a compensation by the first country and 95 can be uh, transferred to the compensation fund for, for, for victims and uh, survivors and, and to compensate the damage. I intentionally simplify this very complicated story. But uh, it's very important for all of us lawyers to understand that, uh, once again, justice is not only something which is the result of the work of some judicial instrument. Justice is something which people feel is just and fair. And first question I... I was about uh, how you map fact patterns. On we the do it. Yes. We do it. This is very important. We use, uh, the, our, we use our cooperation with uh, uh, IT giants who are helping us in our accountability uh, mm-hmm. endeavors. Uh, we use uh, systems like Palantir. We are uh, working with Microsoft. We are working with some IT companies because it's uh, mapping. Of course, we we do it, but do it by hand. Absolutely. Yes, it's quite quite uh, quite difficult, and we can lose. Uh, I've been told by my team that uh, the amount of uh, evidences which are collected in different databases already is more than five. 100 terabytes at the moment. So this uh, is more the most documented war in the history. And you, you, there you have two challenges. First of all, you can't use every uh, feed photo, video, Im- imagery uh, as a matter of evidence. Sometimes it's not enough. Yes, but when you have photo of uh, which is not evidence by itself, and when you have uh, additional photo and video from another site, Yes, with uh, metadata at something like this, yes. Then you can add one to, 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 uh, to another and you have more evidences. Once again, very simplifying the story, but of course we are, we are doing it. And you mentioned very important story, establishing the chain of command. This is very important because what Russians did, once again, <laughs> when we all saw uh, atrocities committed in Bucha, Irpin, after Kiev was liberated. They were all committed in course of February and March. And Russians also saw them. Nevertheless, they were trying to brainwash their populations and some other that this is something like a movie, something like this. Nevertheless, they all also saw, and their soldiers saw. When we liberated Kharkiv in September, and you saw the mass graves in Izum. You saw torture chambers. You saw the people who were uh, killed uh, with hands striped uh, uh, on, on, the, on their back. So the same types of crimes, the same rapes, the same killing. And when we start to, uh, to exhume the bodies and we, we start to do forensics, researches, we understood that these, the same t- crimes were committed not only in March, like in Bucha but also April, May, June, July, August. 
When we liberated Kherson in November, the same type of crimes were... After we all saw what happened in Izum, in Kharkiv, the same type of crimes were committed in Kherson, October, November. On 19th of April this year, we have committee hearings here in U.S. Congress for international crimes. And we invited two survivors. One of them, they were, uh, they were witness, witnesses before the Congress in person. And one of them was a lady who, was, who passed through the uh, sexual violence. And this crime was committed in January this year on still occupied part of Kherson region. Her friends helped her to flat, and then she, she, she came to U.S. and she witnessed before U.S. Congress. So it means that these crimes are not committed by some soldiers who gone crazy, are not committed by some unit which was in Bucha, then somewhere, and then somewhere. So group of servicemen gone crazy. No, this is intentional policy. And this policy is orchestrated from the very top. And it's our obligation to find evidences of all those who ordered to commit these crimes. I'm going to ask the audience to thank you in just a moment, but I want to thank you for your candor and also for making a powerful case that what is happening in your country affects everybody in the world. Thank you very much for your time here. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.